1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Doug Urent, the author of In Search of Mycotopia, Citizen Science, Fungi Fanatics, and the Untapped Potential of Mushrooms. From ecology to fermentation, in pop culture and in medicine, mushrooms are everywhere. With an explorer's eye, author Doug Behrend guides readers through the weird, wonderful world of fungi and the amazing modern mycological movement. In Search of Mycotopia introduces us to an incredible, essential, and oft-overlooked kingdom of life, fungi, and all the potential it holds for our, our future through the work and research being done by an unforgettable community of mushroomed citizen scientists and micro-devotees. This entertaining and mind-expanding book will captivate readers who are curious about the hidden worlds and networks that make up our planet. Virand uncovers a vanguard of mycologists, growers, independent researchers, ecologists, entrepreneurs, and amateur enthusiasts exploring and advocating for fungi's capacity to improve and heal, from decontaminating landscapes and waterways to achieving food security. In Search of Magatopia demonstrates how humans can work with fungi to better live with nature and with one another. Well, Doug, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So as we're going through these unprecedented times uh, during pandemic, so I suppose in a later stages now in uh, uh, February of 2021, I would like to start by asking how have you been coping and what is the sh- situation where, are you, where you are?
0: Oh, um, coping, I guess is a relative, uh, concept, but, um, I've been pretty lucky throughout this, um, ordeal because, uh when it happened or when it, when it first started breaking out a year ago, it's crazy to think it's been a year. Um, I was in Portland actually finishing this book and was staying at a, a friend's house and it was just me there. Um, I, I wasn't able to get back East where I live in New York. Um, so I was stranded, but I was in a situation where, uh, I didn't have to pay rent and where I was comfortable and in a, an area that was relatively unscathed at the time. And, um, yeah, I've just, uh, honestly, there's too many examples to cite of just how kind of miraculous it is that I've I've been able to travel as much as I I was doing, because I was finishing this book, uh, the reporting for this book at the time that the virus was starting to to really make its march and, uh, you know, avoided contracting it and managed to uh, get up here to my current uh, retreat in the woods of upstate New York, where I am spending my time learning to ferment and exploring the woods and practicing guitar and getting ready to introduce people to this book so uh i count myself as very very lucky
1: yeah for sure um did you have any <clears throat> sorry specific ways uh, that you adjusted for your work for example
0: oh good yeah yeah the coping part um
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> the, uh, i mean for me my work has always been remote um for the most part obviously reporting is uh complicated by this um situation and, and, you know, any writing I've been doing has been, uh, limited uh, to what I can do from my computer. Um, but that works for me because traveling is not the most appealing activity at the moment. And, um, yeah, honestly, just those other things like being outside and having the the ability to do that without worrying about exposing myself or others, you know, um, to anything but the trees and, uh, focusing on food and, and, um, just a sort of domestic existence has, has really kind of helped keep me sane. Um, you know, I'm lucky as to be someone who enjoys being alone and reading and alone with the trees, which in my opinion, isn't really alone, but, um, yeah, I think, I think it's been a, an opportunity to, to sink into a lot of the concepts that, that resonated with me in the process of reporting this book, which have to do with reconnecting with nature and food and, um, just sort of, uh, being, being content with the abundance of what's around, um, you know, no intermediate step necessary, no buying anything necessary. So, um, yeah, another way in which I'm lucky, I guess, is that I can, uh, I can, uh, feel sane most, most times in the midst of this insane moment we're having.
1: Yeah, there's a really good uh, mindset for the situation. And I think for many listeners as well, it's really reassuring to hear it because the situation in some places is still not, you know, out of the woods yet, <laughs> as you would say. So, so that that's uh, that's great. All right. So um, you already started uh, kind of allowing us to peer into your you, what you do, like fermenting. That's interesting. Okay, we're going to... We're going to talk about that later. So can you tell me more about yourself?
0: Oh, where to begin? Um, it's, uh, I mean, I, I guess just in terms of like, kind of what led me to, to this moment and to be talking to you. Um, the, uh, the path is a weird one because I, I, you know, I've been a freelance journalist and writer for about 10 years now. And, um, prior to that, it wasn't, clear at all that that was what was going to happen. I actually taught music for seven years and pursued that professionally for a while. And, uh, before that I had ideas about becoming a fighter pilot and was very serious about joining the military and music changed that, uh, set of priorities for me in high school. Um, but during high school and before that, and, and, and kind of in various ways throughout my life, I've, Written and and had a knack for writing, and it, I had to sort of remember at a certain point that oh yeah, I was published in a school newspaper in seventh grade, or rather my my city's newspaper in seventh grade as uh, as part of a journalism class I was in, and you know I was able to write at a higher level than than I think uh, a lot of high school students at the time, and so I got encouragement to pursue it and. Um, eventually kind of came back to it as a, as a thing that I could do and maybe should do professionally. Uh, and then the question was just what to talk about and what to, what to try to, you know, look into as a journalist. And I think that I came to, uh, decide to pursue writing at a time that I was also becoming a lot more sensitive to the ecological state of affairs to um, the social strife and history uh, thereof that you know, the consequences of which we still live with and are trying to resolve um, certainly in this country. Um, and you know became politically activated at that time. And so I think that intersected with uh, a latent interest I had for technology and media. My mom was a computer a computer teacher and a technology integrator in the school system uh, where I grew up. And, uh, so I was looking for a long time in areas of like technology and media to find, um, hope basically examples of things, uh, work, uh, concepts, inventions that might, um, pr- you know, pr- uh, present an alternative or a solution to the many problems that I was becoming a lot more sensitive to. And I eventually became pretty disillusioned with that whole um, discourse and you know field, I, I started to just recognize that it was a lot of boom and bust, hype cycles. You know, and a lot of uh, you know any any solution that might be proposed or, or possible with this or that new technology or invention would only um, you know extend as far as the market would allow. You know, and would only be distributed according to the same rules and and uh mechanisms that got us into the very problems we're hoping to solve with these new technologies and things and so um i had always had this affinity for um marginalized or maligned organisms somehow as a kid like um i'd find myself the beginning i remember distinctly a period in like 6th grade i was a a young child and instead of hanging out with the kids before class i would go to the edge of the lawn and hang out with the snails and the, uh, the mushrooms incidentally. And there was a day when some kids came over and very performatively started stepping on all the snails and kicking over the mushrooms. And, uh, it was done just to upset me because they knew that I was, you know, fond of these things. And I think that, um, you know, another echo from the past that just started to resonate more recently. I, I started, I got introduced to fungi at a time that I was becoming disillusioned with, um, science and technology and media as a thing to write about. And, uh, you know, incidentally, incidentally, I discovered mushrooms, uh, in the context of trying to write about technology. So the first time I wrote about them was for a technology website. Um, I interviewed uh, Paul Stamets, who's a, a very famous myco evangelist and and sort of responsible for bringing a huge number of people into uh, awareness about this subject and myself included. I watched a Ted talk he gave and interviewed him for a tech website. And then I, I had at that point kind of caught the, the, I don't want to call it the bug because that feels like mixing metaphors here, but you know, I caught the spore, <laughs> and uh, oh dear, <laughs> yeah, in a good way, you know, in a in a very good way, and yeah, uh, I like it, good metaphor. Yeah, thank you, and it, uh, yeah, it, it over the that was in like 2015 that that interview happened, and and from then on, it just sort of percolated or fermented in me, you know, this interest, and I think it was partly because like here was this maligned, overlooked. Um, but crucial aspect of the natural world that, um, you know, held all this promise and was also just fascinating in its own right. And, um, so yeah, it just felt like this convergence of all of these sort of trend lines in my history and impulses and inclinations to like explore something under, um, examined and, and, uh, maybe disregarded, and, but also deserving, very deserving of attention. And it also happened to connect with a lot of these radical communities that are looking to sort of surmount, you know, the limitations of our society in terms of like how the economy works, how we think about our responsibility to one another. The idea that that could all be wrapped up in one subject, it's just uh, really compelling to me. Um, so I hope that gives some sense of the trajectory that got me to where I am today and kind of where I'm coming from.
1: Excellent. So that really gives us the big picture of uh, uh, how you got interested and uh, the ways, uh, sort of the paths you chose uh, to follow. So I suppose it's uh, uh, fair to say that snails kick-started your fascination with fungi. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, in a weird way.
1: (laughs) So uh, as you went on discovering more about fungi, can you tell us the basics? What exactly is a fungus?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, (sighs) there... I mean, they're an entirely distinct kingdom of life in in the same way that animals and plants are distinct and represents, you know, just vast, diverse um, populations of organisms that perform roles, which are crucial to the functioning of life throughout the planet. And that includes every kingdom. Um, But we're talking about like as huge in terms of like biomass or comparable in terms of biomass and, and diversity, um, to, and to these other kingdoms of life, to animals and plants, they're fungus. Um, and there's sort of a, they're sort of an intermediary almost. They, they, they're ev- evolutionarily kind of halfway between plant and animal. And they sort of look that way when you see a mushroom, you know, it's fleshy, but it's also plant-like. And there's something really profound about that kind of weird, like they're, they, 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 sh- to me, they, they represent a sort of like this, the smooth borderless spectrum of life that we're part of. And they show like an intermediate point, um, in that way. But what they really are is, um, sing- the, the, I mean, some of them are single-celled. Many of them are multicellular in these networks that are called mycelium and they are single cell wide linked, uh, strands basically, or threads, and that's the, they call it the vegetative uh, state of the fungus or form of the fungus. And that's a holdover from when science considered them to be a part of the plant kingdom. It wasn't until 1969 that they were uh, actually formally designated as their own kingdom, uh, which is interesting. But uh, yeah, they exist as these fuzzy um beings these blotches that can be as small as a few plant cells or as huge as a as you know hundreds of acres um you know spanning entire like tracts of forest um one will often hear about the the humongous fungus they call it in Oregon which is it's the, the exact size of it escapes me at the moment but it's um acres and acres and thousands of years old they think and, um, so the scale of, of possible form or the, 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 range of possible sort of sizes they can take is, is pretty vast. They take all sorts of different forms. They eat all sorts of different, um, materials, a lot of which, uh, are dead and dying leaf, uh, matter and trees and trunks and insects, animals, they eat basically everything. And their role in the you know ecosystem and in nature is is largely one of decomposing and digesting and and breaking down a uh, formerly living thing into the means of other living for other living things to uh make further life from them so they've got this unfortunate association with death and decay which isn't unfortunate because it's inaccurate but because it's um seen as a negative thing or a bad thing but it's so crucial to our um, our existence and fungi are not just incidental to the, the functioning of life on this planet. They're really fundamental to it. And you'll often hear that a forest is uh, not just tracts of fallen logs because fungi are there to eat them and turn them into soil, which, you know, feeds entire uh, universes of, of organisms down the trophic line. Um, and then obviously most people, when they think of fungus will, will think of a mushroom and that is just the fruiting body. They call it another linguistic holdover from their plant, uh, other days as plants, but, uh, that's just the reproductive organ of, of the fungus and, and a sign of, of this much broader, um, hidden activity below. Um, so yeah, fungus is, is. Uh, not just mushrooms; it's it's way more than that. But mushrooms, in and of themselves, are so fascinating and diverse, and often delicious, um, and uh, are enough, as far as I'm concerned, to uh, to warrant an interest in in this kingdom. But it it just goes so much further than that.
1: Yes, exactly. As you mentioned, there's such a huge diversity that we. It's really nice that you put it all across in your book. Uh, that you really turn people's attention, attention to it. So even uh, some of, some more sort of niche uh, um, investigations into uh, solving of for example traveling sales, salesman problem uh, through uh, sort of deterministic, uh, using deterministic um, approaches like a brute force uh, in non-deterministic time, so you know on our time scales but without using all the resources so, have you looked into this part on the slime molds, maybe?
0: So you can train a slime mold on uh, to to overcome an aversion, a natural aversion that that it has to something like caffeine or quinine. And uh, once you've trained it to overcome that aversion, you take a piece of it. You know, these are these are blobs. They look like um, they, they they are they they have one at the zoo in Fran- at a zoo in France, and they call it le blob. It really looks like the blob. It's just this little. It's like a snotty mass. Um, you take a piece of it, and it, it can mer- you can split it apart, merge it back together. It's just a sort of you know a more it's it's an amoeba basically. And you can take a piece of a trained uh, slime mold that's learned its to overcome its aversion to this or that substance. Take that piece and combine it with a, a another slime mold that has not learned that uh, has not been trained the same way, and it will carry that training through. It will like learn from the piece of the other slime mold that has been melded with it. And this is a, this is not a, there's no brain, there's no, there's no nervous system. It's, it's apparently independent cells kind of acting in a, in a, in amorphous blob form, but it can remember things and it can, uh, solve problems, you know, it can find the, I mean, it's an optimization problem. It's not the most like, um, convoluted thing, I guess, to, to, Determine the shortest route through a maze, but you wouldn't necessarily expect uh, a a blob of slime to be able to to work that out. And so, scientists have have developed all sorts of interesting experiments to sort of see what's going on there and what's possible. And they've built computers using slime molds as intermediaries. They've, um, in in my book, I interview a a, he's an artist and an experimental philosopher is is how he terms what he does and. He uh developed this whole program of um research uh at Hampshire College in Massachusetts to pose like policy questions uh to slime molds. And so students there were, were designing experiments to see how they could maybe build a more equitable local transportation system using slime mold as a, a, a an in not indifferent, but um impartial uh agent, you know, which which the idea being that it's maybe limited in certain ways, but it's one thing it's not limited by is the biases that, you know, and, and the, and the, um, just the negative proclivities our, our government may have, or our society may have towards certain groups. Um, it doesn't, it's not burdened by any of that. And so you might be able to find new insights into old problems by just consulting a non-human agent. Um, and I think as interesting as like a better and more equitable, um, Transportation system is or, or whatnot. More interesting to me is the idea that there's grounds to include non human intelligence in human affairs, which being that we're living things on a, a completely co created and, and interdependent living planet, um, human affairs is affairs for everything else on this planet, right? So the idea there is to enfranchise all the other stakeholders in our decision making process. Um, and it's, it's, I, I find it quite interesting that the first sort of candidate for that is a is something that looks like it came out of a tissue. But I think people's aversion to that idea is sort of what, um, that was Jonathan Keats was that experimental philosopher. I think that aversion is itself what he was sort of challenging and trying to invite and poke at. Like, why do we react funny or scrunch our noses if someone suggests that maybe we should ask a slime mold, <laughs> you know, for its opinion mm-hmm. or its feedback on a social problem. Um, I,
1: I yeah, so, so this experiment is really uh, really fascinating to me and uh, uh, even something like optimization of uh, the metro map. So can you maybe describe how does it look visually so listeners have a bit of understanding? Sure,
0: yeah. Um, I'm realizing I've got such a clear image in my head of, of what <laughs> I'm talking about. But, um,
1: and now we all will have one, so... <laughs> yeah,
0: so uh, I got to make sure you got that too. It's uh, Yeah, so you can imagine just an orange blob that um you know loves oats um loves uh, carbohydrates and so oats are kind of the 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 food that they they're trained with most often and the most famous experiment involved laying oats out on a map roughly mimicking the um layout of cities in japan um, around tokyo and putting oats of different sizes to kind of represent population density, and then letting loose a slime mold into the Petri dish that has these oats in this layout. And, um, it reaches out scans, you know, you can watch it kind of unfolding in this wave like pattern, um, veiny it's like an arterial system and it's almost fractal. You know, the closer you look, the, the, the more the pattern repeats and it's, searching its environment, it finds oats, starts delegating, you know, more resources to consuming that oat as it looks for more. And eventually it figures out what the landscape looks like and all of these veins and branches start to refine and collapse into arterial pathways that maybe branch in this or that direction to shuttle, uh, you know, nutrients in a, in an optimal way. And what you end up with after a few days is, um, what looks remarkably like a map of the Tokyo subway system. And the idea there, the the interesting thing about that is that that's a project that took years and who knows how many dollars and man hours, um, to complete and a slime mold did it, uh, for oats in a matter of days, you know, Um, that's a reductive way of kind of, you know, summarizing the the takeaway of it, but, um, it's a pretty vivid example of why people find this so interesting. Like there's a brainless thing, just a blob that was able to, you know, show it. And and I, I've heard that the, the result, the mold came up with was, was more optimized actually in certain ways than the final result. But, um, that could be due to, you know, the, (laughs) the, the limitations of working with stone versus a slime mold and oats. But I hope that that gives some picture of like what it looks like. You end up with an orange veiny map of a subway system that, you know, all it took was oats.
1: Yes, absolutely. So that made it really, really clear. And especially when you think that it's sort of a small science project you can do, during the lockdown and optimized the whole tokyo metro system oh, fascinating
0: <laughs> yeah that's so that is we, actually mm-hmm. uh, oh i just just to, to tag on to that that jonathan keats that mm-hmm. artist uh, that i mentioned um part of his project was uh take home kits so that people could could do these experiments at home and apparently there was a lot of interest and so there's a lot of people with dishes of slime mold in their cupboards somewhere probably
1: yeah, really interesting that you can bring uh, fungi uh, um, home, sort of you know non-toxic ones, and do quite cool experiments with them. So you're not, uh, yeah, so you're not really limited to just uh, plants. <laughs> you can really experiment. So we've, we've spoken a little bit about the policy uh, where the slime molds and uh, and such uh, can can have their impact. So uh, what about scientific discoveries? So we have this uh, workhorse of uh, scien- uh, of molecular scientists the *Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is yeast it's fungus isn't it so uh, from a uh, from a point of view of discoveries how much did it make a difference to what we know about molecular biology
0: do you mean yeast research in particular or um well well you know I'm not I'm not sure that I can really give you a, a, a a comprehensive or definitive account of like how molecular, uh, biology was like reshaped by research into yeast. But, um, yeah, saccharomyces, I've got, I've got to pronounce it right. Uh, saccharomyces, uh, you know, a class of yeast that, um, uh, are very common for brewers, um, bakers, um, saccharomyces cerevisiae. There we go. And, uh, they are uh, used so often um, in, in brewing and, and bread making. They're also used massively in industry and uh, you know, fungi are, are a huge part of the, the enzyme production for industrial purposes throughout the world. And I think they are probably the most studied <laughs> fungus around because they are kind of recodable and manipulatable. Um, people have talked about like recoding, uh yeah. yeast genes to produce psilocybin as a fermentative byproduct you know so you could brew beer that would have psilocybin in it in theory um and that's just by dint of like toying with the genes in these these relatively simple organisms that are highly r- responsive to to modification and reprogramming and highly reliable um But, uh, I mean, I guess that's the most I could probably say about that, you know, and feel kind of responsible, but, um, yeah. Do you want, could you clarify maybe the question as far as like what you mean by like the, the, what area of like yeast you're talking about or.
1: So you mentioned uh, food industry, so that's uh, perfectly, perfectly, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of answering the question. So in terms of bioreactors, for example, you already mentioned production of some chemicals like psilocybin, but also other other ones. So you can produce huge amounts of protein, right, yes. for example, right, right. Uh, and to make uh, uh, vegan meat.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, and uh, lots of people probably have, um, you know, nutritional yeast in their uh cupboards. And, um, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's an interesting example, I guess, at the, the level that I, I I can assess it at is probably more at the level of like perceiving an organism as a mechanism that can be, you know, industrialized and the, yeah, the scale at which yeast is sort of deployed and utilized at an industrial level is, is pretty, um, pretty vast. And, uh, you know, I, I mentioned in my book, a uh, an older book from like the 50s, I think, that um, was sort of ballyhooing uh, yeast as this new um, resource for you know meeting all of humanity's nutrition needs because you could set up a, a bioreactor on a you know plot of land a fraction the size of what you would need for cattle or or you know any uh, any kind of agriculture and just produce high protein, you know, cakes basically of yeast that, that, um, don't require much in the way of inputs and, and, uh, are highly reliable. And there was all this, um, hope and excitement about what it would mean. But of course we still have food scarcity today and, you know, these, these, you know, uh, possibilities and, and, uh, uh, you know this potential that it had to feed the world, um, weren't realized, and and I I think that goes back to that point about like the systems that you know were that define the context of of these innovations is what's going to determine whether it um, scales, you know, or or meets the needs of everybody, and and so yeast is maybe a great example of that because it was it is so um, versatile and powerful and widespread um and useful and you know people are still hungry (laughs) so um yeah i think i think to me the most interesting kind of aspect of that is is just in kind of questioning whether the solutions to our problems lie in viewing organisms as components in an industrial process
1: Yes, for sure. It has uh, great potential to perhaps uh, even something like fermentation to produce longer lasting foods uh, with a higher nutritional content, but mm-hmm. it's all on the balance of uh, um, where and how and uh, how much does it cost, isn't it?
0: Yeah, who gets it, you know, who mm-hmm. gets to eat that food, um, who has access. And,
1: yeah. and uh, we're back to distribution problem, basically.
0: Yeah. yeah, maybe slime mold can help us with that.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, we covered the uh, um, scientific part. So let's talk about the culture. So there was a really interesting word in a book, which is a So can you describe who are anarcomycologists?
0: narcomycologist? Um, the first person who who introduced me to this side of the mycological world was um, Olga Sogus, who, who is the sole proprietor of a, small mushroom company in in Rochester New York called smugtown uh, smugtown mushrooms and I visited her uh, with the idea of just reporting on this kind of anti-capitalist <laughs> mushroom business that was trying to stay afloat and like how was that even possible um, her whole concept seemed to be one of like serving her community building building a community and sort of serving it and she really wanted to do her work in the context of like a a mutual aid um, uh, sort of arrangement where people basically like a, a socialist or communist kind of like picture of the world that, I mean, I think there's political implications to that point of view, but it didn't seem like it was coming from a political place. It seemed like she was just tired of having to like, like all she wanted to do was grow mushrooms, share that excitement, bring people in, provide medicine and food to her community. But she had to think about, you know, how much it was going to cost to move the autoclave and how to, how to not get screwed by the landlords who like the building she was in was passing over, uh, passing into the hands of these people who wanted to replace it with a beer garden. And so she had to go, you know, and so like all of the, the frustrations of operating in the, in the context of capitalism were were getting to her. And, um, you know, all the people that were working there were very like punk, you know, and they all had like, uh, denim vests and motorhead patches and, you know, uh, and, and also these mushrooms that sort of like somehow seem to really fit in with that kind of punk attitude as, as symbols. And I had never even considered that before I like stepped into the midst of this, this space where all these mushrooms are growing out of, you know, bags and there's humid, humid air and weird smells and fluids being transferred between beakers and stuff. And also like rock records (laughs) and, uh, all this, uh, you know, countercultural kind of energy. So the anarcho-mycologist in my mind is, is someone who's, you know, become fascinated with fungi has built some sort of working relationship with them, whether professionally or, or just for its own sake. And who represents this, this move that I've seen kind of in various forms of expression throughout the country to seize fungi as like a symbol, um, and, uh, motivator or example of shifting society in a direction that's more equitable, respectful to nature, or rather like that's one that centers nature. Um, eventually, like very quickly, the conversation uh, verges outside of fungi. And we're talking about, you know, like redistribution of land and, you know, sustainable and equitable food systems and stuff like that. So a lot of these people who are, you know, they're mycologists, they, they study fungi and they work with fungi, the project they're, they're really looking to. And from what I've seen is, is much bigger than that. And is actually more like social ecological, uh, at, at those levels. And so, yeah, I guess that, that's sort of the, the sense I have for what an anarcho and for what an anarcho mycologist is. I hope that makes sense.
1: Yeah, for sure. And uh, what I'm interested in is, is there any sort of central organization or is it mostly people like, like Olga, like you describe, who decided to become one, but uh, is not really interested in getting other people interested? Or how does this culture work?
0: Right. Well, I would say she's she's definitely interested in getting people interested. I mean, she's she's a communicator of this stuff. as much, and, and a lot of these people end up teaching it as well, because there's this huge gap of knowledge in the general public. Around fungi, most people don't know what they are, or how they live, or anything. You know, you know. Even if you know the bare basics of like what a plant is or how it works, it's far more than most people know about how fungus works. And so, a lot of these people end up educating, and I think a lot of networks form across the country through, uh, you know, this growing interest in fungi. So there's a lot of people looking to learn. There's a lot of economic opportunity. That's a reason a lot of people want to learn too. And so I think that's a sort of found uh, a foundational structure for this community is just educating people. And, um, then there's also an economic kind of dimension to it. Like a lot of these people make tinctures and extracts and sell, you know, fresh mushrooms for medicinal or food purposes. And, and they work with restaurants in their area or they sell spawn bags, you know, with, with basically like a starter for mushrooms that someone can grow at grow themselves. You know, there's there's there are these various kind of ways to to serve the mushroom economy which is growing and so there's also a lot of excitement about how that might uh how that might look in the future and what it could mean for like food security and and uh resilience. Um but yeah, I think the culture you know, obviously it's mediated a lot by the internet and there's a huge like mushroom Instagram world and mushroom Facebook world and they're very visually appealing or engaging or luring, intriguing, you know, organisms. And so I think they're just sort of perfect for, for social media posts. And I, uh, I think that's driving a lot of the growth in their interest lately. But um, yeah, the network, uh, the, the sort of North America is where my focus is really, uh, you know, at in this book. And, and I've just in the last five years seen what was really a bi-coastal kind of community, um, start to overlap and form. And, and to my mind, the picture is one of like fungal threads kind of reaching across the country and forming a big mat, you know, like a, a singular organism. And I, I genuinely feel like that's happening. Um, and not in any small way due to the fact that these people think in terms of mycological metaphors, a lot of times, and they'll talk about sporulating and myceliating as what they're doing, you know, as a, as a, way of looking at their project in life and, and their professional project. Like they've got ideas, they've, they've come to some insight or, or, you know, sublime profound relationship to nature that they want to, you know, you know, uh, stay with in their life, but also share. And they find ways of doing that in a lot of ways, a lot of cases, that's through education. It's through, you know, finding ways of, of developing, you know, a, a business. Um, but it, it was an interesting thing to, to sort of experience, like all these people who are doing this stuff, most of them in my experience were, were doing it kind of for its own sake. And we're like, just trying to find a way to make it work so that they could do it. They weren't necessarily trying to like make it rich, uh, you know, make a, uh, you know, a fortune on mushrooms. Although there are some people who are, are trying to do that.
1: So how do you see this culture evolving? Do you think it will be absorbed into the mainstream or perhaps become a part of environmentalist movement?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Because, yeah, I mean, it can can sort of seem like a trend or a fad. You know, mushrooms are are popular right now, and I think that's why this book is getting any attention at all. Um, There's, like, there's a a public kind of curiosity about fungi, and uh, my concern is that, like, all of these sort of innocent earth first, you know, attitudes that that resonated with me in the space might just get pushed to the side as capital steps in and, you know, decides the shape of things moving forward because it tends to do that. And, um, you know, here's this kingdom of life, this massive dimension of our living world that is only now coming to public attention and even to the attention of science in a lot of ways, And so there's all this opportunity, like, how are we going to relate to these organisms? What are we going to, uh, do with them and like with them in a, in a partnership sense or in a, like an extractive sense, you know, it could go either way. And I think, uh, I, I just hope that it, I hope that this is a moment of like sufficient uncertainty in the world. And, and, uh, I should rephrase that. I think the world is in a state where maybe we can recognize the value in approaching this thing differently, you know, as a society. And I think a lot of people are looking for alternatives and looking for hope in the midst of some pretty dire times and fungi. You know, we're, we hear from prominent people, like they literally say, you know, mushrooms can save the world. They And they, they can do all these things that are really useful for us. They can heal landscapes and clean waterways and provide food and medicine and All that is true with, you know, caveats, but, um, you know, that, that, that's only going to be helpful to us if we can kind of change the, the way we pursue those outcomes, um, instead of just trying to plug it back into the same old system. So my hope is that the kind of message of the mushroom, you know, one of like serving a role in an ecosystem rather than trying to master it, um, that uh, looks to like local and distributed kind of mechanisms. I mean, like fresh mushrooms, for example, they don't travel very well. And so there's an automatic kind of limiting factor to that, um, industry or to that, uh, market. That means that it stays geographically bound for the most part. And so there's some dimensions to just how fungi work and what working with them looks like. That gives me hope that it, it might actually facilitate some changes in the way we think and and operate um the more people become interested and sort of hear the message and and i guess that was sort of my hope with this book was to like give that dimension of it a voice um and to take that thread that i was seeing in these you know communities and among these people and sort of make that the center of things rather than like hey maybe mushrooms can clean up our oil spills or replace styrofoam or whatever um which is i think what dominates the the conversation uh, these days and if and I think if we're looking at it like that, then it's just going to get subsumed, you know, and in, in, it's either going to get marginalized as part of like eco activism or whatever, or it's going to, you know, become another playground for capital. And um, my hope is that, you know, at a time when we need to be subverting the latter thing in particular, in my opinion, um, maybe this is a good time to boost the signal of the people who are sort of um, uh, taking what to me are, are the, the, the best messages, you know, from this dimension of life and and the work they're doing with it and and how they're kind of trying to factor that work into another way of organizing their communities and, you know, ultimately with any luck society at large. Um, But that's, that's just my hope. (laughs) We'll see.
1: Well, learning all that about mushrooms uh, got me really scared that they can take over the world the way they for example can grow in the nervous system of, of ants or take over them turn them into zombie ants zombie yeah. bees
0: yeah yeah and a lot of uh, a lot of mu- mushroom cultivators will joke that they've uh, you know they've fallen victim to <laughs> some strain of fungus that <laughs> has just conscripted them into lifelong service but none of them seem to be that unhappy about it to be honest so maybe uh maybe we could all use uh <laughs> maybe we could all use a, a fungal uh influence in our in our thinking
1: <laughs> so for you uh what would be the first steps that we can practically do towards the more equitable sort of ideal world where fungi are being integrated in, the, in into our society you know on the medicinal level or the agricultural level or mm. in any of these ways
0: yeah um you know, honestly, I, I feel like the the only suggestion I could make is just to to learn about them, um, because you know, I think from what I've seen, they take people in different directions, um, and it's in large part kind of a stand-in for just learning about nature or becoming sensitive to nature. I mean, for me, you know, I, I grew up hiking in in the outdoors, and and like I said, I had a relationship with like you know living things and got really obsessed with insects for a while and and yet there was this um relationship like like in a personal sense with nature that um i had not formed and i only came to realize that after getting into fungi because it brought my attention to uh all all of these other aspects of nature like Oh, you want to look for mushrooms in the woods. You have to learn about this or that tree that that mushroom associates with. You have to start paying attention to the aspect of the land, to the, the climate conditions, the microclimate conditions, you know, getting into mushrooms in any kind of, um, you know, vigorous way necessarily requires learning more about everything else in nature because it connects to everything in nature and, Um, and I think through that people find all sorts of, of ways of, of practicing and, um, you know, uh, deepening that, that, that path. Um, so like, you you know, it's very easy to find, at least in, in the U S uh, like grow kits that grow, grow mushrooms at home from a cardboard box, you know, just add water. It's, it's really that simple and just that simple step of growing mushrooms at you know, in your kitchen, uh, I think unveils tons of insight, uh, into, you know, what life is, <laughs> you know, how life works and, and certainly how these specific organisms work. And I think it sparks, you know, it, it may just fill your belly that evening, you know, for dinner, or it might do as it's done for so many others and spark uh curiosity that takes you in, in new directions. So, you know, growing, trying new mushrooms, going foraging. That was the the big one for me was going foraging with Olga because she was someone who really knows how to find mushrooms and, and being with her in the woods meant that the woods took on a completely different character um, and kind of lit up with mushrooms that I had never even heard of before, but which were incredible, like, like mind blowing mushrooms, like the artist's conch they call it, which, which grows out of the sides of trees and it has this, ceramic white belly that you can draw on with your finger. It bruises purple as you touch it. And so people draw messages on these mushrooms. I'd never seen one before and I drew a little happy face on it. And lion's mane was growing from a tree. I'd never heard of lion's mane before, but there was this, and it's a very prime, like it's, it's a high price. It's like $20 a pound or so here. Um, And there was at least a pound of it growing off of a tree and cut it off with a knife and we were grilling it uh, that evening, you know, and, the sense of abundance that came from that um, and and my kind of perspective on what's happening in the woods started to shift in such a profound way um, that like really the best, yeah, the best advice I can think to give right now is just um, go to the woods and look for them with someone who knows how to find them or try growing them at home. Uh, just take a step. And I mean, if there's, if you're listening to this, I assume you're curious a little bit and the first step you take uh, is likely to be the first of many. Uh, so that, that would, that would be my advice.
1: Yes. And I think your book is a perfect introduction to this uh, fascinating topic. It uh, sort of leads you you to explore more. Well, Doug, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what is your current project?
0: Uh, well, my current project is, uh, sauerkraut (laughs) I'm making in the kitchen right now. Um, and preparing to talk to people about this book and, uh, I'm I'm applying for a a fellowship at the moment because I'm not sure um, how much more kind of freelance writing I want to do after this uh, very rewarding experience of writing a book. So I'm starting to consider how to get ready for the next one, which, um, yeah, I I have some ideas about, but uh, probably too early to even Uh, hint at them, (laughs) but uh, this was a a great experience, and and I'm preparing for uh, uh, preparing to see what happens, what comes of it. The book isn't even out yet as we speak, and uh, that uh, uh, you know, what the world will look like for me after it comes out is still kind of an open question, but um, I know that the process of creating it has changed my life in, in such enriching ways that uh, yeah that's a that's something i'd like to try again
1: do you think it can be a sort of time to reflect as well just to have this time to yourself rather than rushing into something else
0: yeah and and you know i guess what i just said is probably a long way of uh, <laughs> saying that that's what i'm doing um it uh you know it was a, a kind of an unexpected thing honestly to to write this book and so you know over a very chaotic couple of years that that straddled this uh pandemic and um my mother passed away as well last year and so it was like this this tr- very trying and, and and uh chaotic year uh for everybody obviously 2020 but um the whole process of writing this book was was intense and transformative and so i'm still kind of taking stock of uh of what that means to me and and what to do with all that has happened over the last few years so um you know, really my hope is just to spend the next few months introducing people to this amazing subject of fungi and these amazing people that are doing such interesting and uh, entertaining in a lot of ways, like work with them. And uh, I hope that it uh, it draws people down that path of curiosity that I'm, I'm still walking myself and I'm so happy I found.
1: Excellent. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and the book?
0: Great. Um, I'm, I'm, most easy to find on twitter at doug uh or on instagram uh, same name and uh, that's probably where you'll you'll find me for the time being unless uh unless a publication that you follow happens to to run an article i write but um, I'm easy to find
1: excellent well thanks so much for joining us today
0: thanks so much for having me it was a pleasure